everybody. This is the Best of Business Bureau podcast. My name is Christian Borky. I'm the creator and host. And this podcast is produced by the Lincoln Lodge, which is a nonprofit indie comedy venue in Chicago. Check out their website. Donate to them if you feel like it. Today, I have a awesome guest. She has a PhD in biomedical engineering. It is Dr. Alex Bear. Hello. This is going to be a sleigh of an episode today. The episode is titled An Episode About Rats. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and before we jump in, I just have a couple announcements. Forgive me for introducing you and then saying, now it's my turn to talk. Uh, I'm working on a season finale right now, and it's going to take me a couple weeks to do it. So this is going to be the last episode for just a couple weeks, taking a little hiatus. And I will be back with something amazing. Never been done before. Spectacular. Gorgeous. Beautiful. So forgive me, besties. I'll be taking a few weeks off after, after this one. But coming up soon on October 1st, 2022 is my live show at the Lincoln Lodge. Get your tickets now. Truly get them in advance because this is going to be a, a bonanza, bonanza event. So once again, a Busted Business Bureau live podcast is happening at the Lincoln Lodge in Chicago, October 1st. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite and in the link in the description in the podcast. Finally, I have a Patreon at Busted Biz Bureau, patreon.com slash Busted Biz Bureau. You can donate there. My patrons pick the season finale, and that's what I'm going to be spending time working on. Now, you know who else has a show at the Lincoln Lodge? It is Dr. Bear. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for that intro. Um, Yes, I run Uncontrolled Variables every second Thursday of the month. Next one is this Thursday. Come on out. It's going to be fun. (laughs) Now, what is Uncontrolled Variables, the show? I know what it is, but I'm asking some listeners (laughs) to know what it is. So it's a science and comedy show. So we have scientists come on they prepare three slides and then the comedians that we have on have to present the slides without any background (laughs) on the science um so basically we have from we have comedians looking like idiots and then scientists looking really smart um and you get to like learn a little bit about their research and also laugh and it's a really fun time (laughs) that is so cool just the coolest so that's going to be this thursday at what time 7.30. This Thursday at 7.30 at the Lincoln Lodge in Chicago. You better go out right now. (laughs) Alex, I want to share with you the greatest piece of journalism that I've ever encountered. Okay. (laughs) For context, this is a story that my college roommate told me years ago. And she has to have retold me this story several times because I know I have several texts in my phone being like, remind me this guy's name. Uh, The story is of her science teacher, Mr. McKnight, who fell very ill after coming into contact with a pet. I'm going to read you the full story from his high school's, like, review of what happened. Okay, (laughs) I'm scared. This is from Liz Such, who was a high schooler, I assume, the editor of the Caneland Crier. Here it is. Bowling is more than just a hobby for bowling coach and science teacher James McKnight. Over the summer, his pet rat, Spunky, bit him, and McKnight contracted a disease similar to the bubonic plague. (laughs) McKnight went through kidney dialysis every other day for four hours at a time, was in the hospital for six and a half weeks, and lost his right thumb as a result of the unlikely happenstance. (laughs) Since November, McKnight has returned to being the coach of Caneland's girls' bowling team. Not even a missing phalange can slow him down. In order to continue his passion for bowling, McKnight is teaching himself how to bowl with his left hand. Everything is different, he says. I feel weaker and uncoordinated. The ball rolls differently, and I have basically no confidence in my abilities. I thought about just giving up bowling, but it's too important in my life, McKnight said. McKnight's equipment had to be changed to accommodate his change in hand. He had to get new shoes and a new ball drilled to fit his left hand's fingers. Liz Such finishes with a quote from McKnight. Quote, bowling with my left hand makes me empathize with our new bowlers on the girls' bowling team because they often join the team with very little experience. I can feel not only their frustration and pain, but also their excitement and determination. The support, love, empathy, and concern were amazing. I'm humbly grateful to everyone. I'm really back. <laughs> wow. 
Now, this article is titled, Mr. McKnight Works to Keep on Rolling. <laughs> and I have so many questions for Liz that include the bubonic plague? <laughs> Where was the lawsuit, Mr. McKnight? I know. I mean, my main question is, what kind of high school has a bowling team? Because that was not part of my childhood at all. absolutely not part of my childhood. I guess I also skipped that part of the story. <laughs> the fact that it focuses entirely on the bowling yeah. is a level of com- com- comedic genius that I cannot describe. And when I read, oh, also when I was reading it on their website, like uh, a Chiron came on the top of the screen that said, April 27th, Spirit Day theme is dressed like Adam Sandler Day. <laughs> <laughs> this high school fucking rocks. <laughs> and this is, I assume, somewhere around Aurora, Illinois. So good for Caneland High. Oh Anyways, when I was reading this article, two big questions came to my mind that Liz Such did not answer in her journalism, which she did a great job, to be clear, Liz. One, how is it legal to sell an animal that carries something like the bubonic plague? Is an animal sold at a pet store a product, and would that not be a defective product? Were it to give somebody the plague? Where was the lawsuit, Mr. McKnight? That's what I'm wondering. And that is what this episode is about. It's an episode about rats. <laughs> and mice. You work with a lot of mice and rats in your line of I study. Do, I do. <laughs> I do. I do biomedical research. Um, so I do kill a lot of mice. <laughs> I am laughing, but I feel terrible about it. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, it's it's like a fascinating inter- industry, and I'm excited to hear what you learned about it and give a couple of my thoughts about it. Amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we will, at some point after this lengthy section I have, get to industry standards when it comes to lab rats and like science rat care and distribution, or lab mice, I should say. Yeah. Um, but first, we're going to talk about the questions of, is an animal a product? Mm. And severely aiding in my research is the journal article, Every Dog Can Have Its Day, Extending Liability Beyond the Seller by Defining Pets as Products Under Product Liability Theory by Jason Parent in the Animal Law Review at Lewis and Clark School from 2005. Okay. <laughs> it was Let's get into a it. thrilling read at the cafe. <laughs> this article is a defense on classifying animals as products as it would ultimately be more beneficial to them and to consumers. But it also provides a lot of helpful context on like where we are right now when it comes to animals as products. So he writes, quote, product liability law has been around for nearly half a century, yet legal definitions of the term product are hard to come by, leaving unclear exactly what is included in the definition. To this day, there is no nationally accepted definition of product, which is already shaky ground to start on. Just product in general? Product in general, yeah. Okay. So when we're talking about live animals, because they have blood, that's part of why it's kind of difficult to classify them, because we don't count, like, human... Oh, wait. I might be saying that wrong. Something about human blood is, like, special in that it's not a product, and because animals also have blood, (laughs) like... (laughs) We'll we'll get into it. (laughs) So he also starts by talking about the American Law Institute. Have we ever heard? No. It is a very popular nonprofit that some courts look to when deciding about cases. So this is a nonprofit that will write opinions on the law and how to interpret the law that courts will often reference. It's very popular in a court to be like, according to the American Law Institute, like this is a product and this is why I'm making my decision. So they define animals as products in the following way. Quote, when a living animal is sold commercially, I'll say it again. When a living animal is sold commercially in a diseased condition and causes harm to other property or persons, the animal constitutes a product for purposes of this restatement. 
which it's like a restatement of torts, which a lot of courts reference. Things that you do not need to know. So are they just saying, like, if it has a disease, it is a product? Mm -hmm. If it has a disease (laughs) and it hurts somebody, it is a product that is defective and it should be the, the company that sold it or the seller should be liable. Okay, sure. Therefore, according to the ALI, a, an animal is a product, but only for a limited number of situations in which the animal can cause harm. And this is, again, a nonprofit that has no lawmaking power. They just think it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and people are like, I like what they think. So courts absolutely do reference it, but like they're not legally obligated to do so. So it's a gray area. The uh, So uh, when it comes to a rat being sold by PetSmart that has the fucking plague, <laughs> they would define that as a defective product. But here's some existing case law when it comes to defining animals as products using that word. Because product, good, and chattel all refer to different things legally. So let's start with Caruso versus Crawford Hospital. This <laughs> existing case law. In 1979, there was a woman who had a dog. She was very attached to this dog, and it died. She arranged to have a funeral that was pretty elaborate for it. The dog had died at the Crawford Hospital for Cats and Dogs, and the plan was for them to transport the body to a different funeral service to then arrange for the funeral. Okay. The woman was horrified to discover that on the day of the funeral, when they opened the casket to look at it, it's a cat. Oh. And not a dog. <laughs> 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 Which is very jarring, you know? Yes. You got a coffin, you got a ceremony, and you don't have the right body. Was it, do, okay, do animals have open casket funerals? I guess this one did, but I've never seen an open casket funeral. I don't want to make fun of this woman, but I personally have never seen an open casket funeral for an animal. Yeah, like they do its makeup and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the dog embalmer? Like, yeah. do they have an embalmer? Uh. Now I have 8,000 more. You're right. It brings up a lot more questions. That's an interesting business, be. funerals for... Okay. Yeah, it was called like a (laughs) Bidoe, I think. I didn't write it down, but I was like, what a name for an animal (laughs) funeral service. (laughs) They got to make good money. Yeah, someone's got to do it. Right? Now, when my animals died as a kid, they just got buried in the yard or thrown in the trash. Yeah, the trash? (laughs) Well, I had a lot of birds as a kid. Uh, He would. I don't know you that well, but yeah, it, it all checks out. That was the most brutal read that I've ever received on this podcast. And you're so right. What did you do with your animals when you were a kid? I think we also buried them in the backyard. We just mm. had one dog, um, Nala. Yeah. My dad's dog's name is Nala. Yeah. Yeah. I was a big Lion King girl. Oh. Yeah. But I wanted to name the dog um, Pink Ballet Barbie Tara Lipinski. <laughs> And my family's like, mm, let's do Nala instead. <laughs> Read me the name one more time that you wanted it to be. Pink Ballet Barbie Tara Lipinski. That is the greatest <laughs> dog name I've ever heard in my fucking life. <laughs> Someday I will name a dog that. <laughs> I feel like that's also a very appropriate cat name. I yeah. think you can name cats something stupid. Yeah. yeah. I named um, the college roommate who I was referencing earlier. She had two cats and we lived together. I named one of them Women's Suffrage. <laughs> <laughs> what did it go by? Wimmy Suffy. <laughs> Anyways. This woman in 1979, when she discovers that there's a cat in her casket for a dog, uh, she decides to sue the hospital, not the funeral place, for damages. Because in transferring the dog to the funeral service, something happened and they got a cat. She won $700 in this lawsuit. And the judge's decision, he writes, quote, This decision is not to be construed to include an award for the loss of a family heirloom, which would also cause great mental anguish. An heirloom, while it might be the source of good feelings, is merely an inanimate object and not capable of returning love and affection. It does not respond to human stimulation. It has no brain capable of displaying emotion, which in turn causes a human response. 
Losing the right to memorialize a pet rock or a pet tree or losing a family picture in an album is not actionable. But a dog that is a dog that is something else. To say it is a piece of personal property and no more is a reputation of our humanness. This I cannot accept. So this is saying that dogs are something a little bit beyond property mm. and not property, which this was in New York. That's existing case law where we've got animals defined as something different than property, but not property. Okay. So again, this woman wins the lawsuit. She gets $700 in jam- damages. And that was 1979. <laughs> We're talking about one also in New York from 1982. This one, it's, I'm going to read a lot of it. The judge had to have been coked out of his fucking mind when he wrote this <laughs> because there's puns. There's... Uh, Mind you, he agrees with the plaintiff and awards her $1,200 for um, what happened in this case. But I I need to read this to you. Quote, this is the sad tale, or is it tale, T-A-I-L. Jesus Christ. This is in a court decision. Uh... Of the noble but late Toko Toucanbird, which the plaintiff, Deborah Bazzini, purchased from the defendants doing business as Sexy Sadie's Exotic Birdhouse. Which I think the judge is already like (laughs) laughing, coked out of his mind reading this. Tragically, the bird's future with Miss Bazzini proved to be quite limited. Within two weeks after his physical, the bird suffered a seizure. There was no evidence of foul play. (laughs) F-O-W-O. Sure. The plaintiff contacted the veterinarian who advised her to coax the bird back to health by having him sip Gatorade. <laughs> Ridiculous. Like a champion, the bird seemed to recover. Oh but this recovery enjoyed only the reign of a lame duck politician. Seven days later, the bird was dead. An insane way to describe somebody's animal dying. <laughs> the bird's experience is not novel in New York law. In Teruli versus Birds in Paradise, uh, this is a case with some similarities. That bird was a cockatoo. Despite warning and disclaimer similar to the one provided by the defendants to the plaintiff here, the purchaser of that cockatoo did not have it examined. The bird died approximately one month later. In determining the question of liability, the court applied the provisions under the Uniform Commercial Code. The court accepted the contention that the birds constitute goods within contemplation of the code and that the defendant was a merchant. Those findings are valid and applied to this case as well. Subdivision 2 of this section, you don't care, is not applicable since to, uh, to exclude the warranty of merchantability pursuant to that section, there must be mention of the word merchantability. This may seem a harsh rule to the defendants, but as all entrepreneurs in the tropical business realize, and the tropical bird business realize, it's a jungle out there. <laughs> Okay, so this one, bird equals product, but last one, dog equals no product. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad that you're following along. I think based on the cuteness of the animal and the yeah. horror that the person experienced regarding the animal, that changes the case law. Yeah, but this this person got more money than the dog. This person did get more money than the dog. She had spent like $1,200 on the bird trying to take care of it and get it back to health, which the bird died like a month later. And because it had a congenital, I don't know if it was like a heart defect or some sort of defect, Using the word defect was also important in this case because it was like a Mm. defective product because this animal is sick. Generally, people receive an animal with the expectation that it will live. Yeah. And so finding that barrier of like how long is the animal supposed to live before it's defective is kind of difficult. Well, I feel like also maybe you know about this, but like in like back in the 70s and 80s might have been different but now i feel like the regulations on like dogs are probably pretty strict mm-hmm. i don't know maybe it's not that way with birds well this it's interesting you mention that because i read this because first of all it mentions the uniform commercial code and uh, you know defective good whatever but also i feel like back in the day it demonstrates how unserious they took like, <laughs> anything regarding animal rights yeah. because the 
this is insane that the judge is just like layering this with puns. It's a yeah. jungle out there. I'll fucking kill you, dude. I would like to see how he writes about like murder. <laughs> 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 this guy probably he must be really popular or unpopular depending yeah. on how you look at it. I'm sure his interns are like, dude, are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, can you like scan the thesaurus to like make this sentence a little poppier? <laughs> He's got like interns like he's on a late night show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need to punch up this last brief. <laughs> His stenographer fucking hates him. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, on the one hand, there are some states that will say animals are not products because of mutability. That is, they can grow and change over time and it's they're affected by the owner, not the seller. So if you've got a dog that arrives to you not aggressive, but you treat it really shitty and it becomes like food aggressive, that's your fault. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there is no way to pinpoint the exact liability of when a dog becomes dangerous and defective. As a result, animals are not products. They're just animals. On the other hand, states like New York now, or Connecticut or Oregon, argue that they should be products because, quote, there is no reason why a breeder, distributor, or vendor who places a diseased animal in the stream of commerce should be less accountable for his actions than the ones who market a defective manufactured product. So entering disease <laughs> into the market, bad. Yes. <laughs> for that reason, it should be a product so that way it can be regulated. That is also the argument that the paper is making. If you treat animals like products, then the breeders or sellers are mm-hmm. more obligated or regulated to examine the pet's pedigree, where it came from, test it for diseases, mm-hmm. before passing it off to like a pet co. Yeah. And then passing it on to a consumer. And then what's the alternative? Like, if it's not a product, what is it? If it's not a pro- it's just like animal. Okay. <laughs> it's really, it's... Um, there's another case in here that I didn't write down where a Doberman pincher who had just had babies or whatever was being visited by a woman and her young son. And the son... I don't like where this is going. The son, everything's... Everyone lived. Okay. But the son got too close to the dogs. The dog bit the kid. He's kind of okay. young. Sure. And the judge had said this Doberman is like an animal who was rightfully kind of aggressive. Like it's known in her biology that she is a mother and will be aggressive towards people trying to attack her young. Mm -hmm. And therefore, like it is not it's not the because they had tried suing the uh, breeder of the dog, not the owners of the dog Mm -hmm. by saying, like, it's your fault. You gave us an aggressive dog. But there, and then the court was like, no, that's an animal. Like, mm-hmm. they, yeah. she should have just been that aggressive. Yeah. That's not exactly what they said, but you know, like, that's what was in there. Yeah. Oh, I did write this down. Yeah, the family sued the owners who said it's not her fault the dog is aggressive. She was bred that way, sued the owner. It did not go well. Wow. In another state, a seller sold a rabid skunk to an unsuspecting no. owner. <laughs> that one went a lot better for the plaintiff. <laughs> and per parent, like I was just saying earlier, quote, again, it seems that the rule adopted by jurisdictions correlates strongly to the lack or presence of egregious facts. Which is, it's not across political boundaries or whatever. It's just like, if something really fucked up happened at a state, then like they're more likely to describe it as a product. Okay. As in selling a rabid skunk to somebody. Yeah. Uh, bad. <laughs> well, why are you buying a skunk in the first place? That is so fair. <laughs> I mean. That is the hard-hitting questions that we ask on this podcast. <laughs> that is insane. I. They're adorable, yeah. though. Stinky. <laughs> <laughs> Too stinky. <laughs> they are quite stinky. But, you know, that's that's what some people are into. Yeah, you know? true. Not in the business of yucking yums on this podcast. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm in the business of yumming yucks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the terms property and product are not legally synonymous, especially for the purposes of product liability. While all products are someone's property, only in some jurisdictions is the converse true, that pets are, uh, that uh, whatever, for 
God, I lost the thread of the sentence. It was in there somewhere. Um, also, I learned the difference between chattel and property, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But property in the olden days just referred to, like, literally your house, like your property, and you could not move it. Whereas chattel is personal belongings that you could move. Okay. Which I did not know. I didn't know that. That's just for you. <laughs> and Parent further argues in the paper, if altruism does not encourage breeders to breed responsibly, which is kind of what we have now, mm-hmm. perhaps product liability claims could deter them from breeding improperly. It would also increase the quality of service animals, mm-hmm. uh, says Parent. There was a lawsuit. Did I write this down? I did not. There was a lawsuit where a service dog had walked a blind woman right into traffic. <laughs> Are you laughing at it? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Which... Because it's in one of those, like, ambiguous areas where, like, is the dog a product that is defective because it didn't do its one fucking job? Yeah. Or is the dog an animal that makes mistakes like everybody does? Like, yeah. is it a person that makes a mistake or is it a product that is defective? So that was um, very interesting. I, know, I think we should replace all dogs with robots. You're so right. Just <laughs> across the board. <laughs> I see this as a full dog hater. Yeah, I really am. I know. I went on a whole rent to you in the car. It is kind of, yeah. Why, why can't robots be seeing eye dogs? <laughs> I don't. I, I would assume the technology has not happened yet. Have you seen like a single Tesla car trying to do something automatically? It catches on fire and then like drives <laughs> into pedestrians. I can't imagine the dog doing that, like a robot dog. I guess. I mean, yeah, yeah. You make a good point. <laughs> <laughs> like I just think we're not there. I don't know if we'll ever get there as a society to get seeing our robot dogs. I think we will. I you think will? next ten years. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I'm holding you to that. I'm yeah. phoning you up. In well, 10 I think years. if we have self-driving cars, which I think we will have in like the next ten years. That is very then... optimistic of you. Are you I, online? Are you on Twitter? Well, I sort of, but I also have a PhD, so I kind of am, like, really smart about these kinds of things. <laughs> you for real think we're going to have self-driving cars? Well, I remember in college we had to take, like, these engineering, like, in society classes. Mm-hmm. And in college, which for me was six years ago, they were like, yeah, next 10 years we'll have self-driving cars. And I've kind of just carried that knowledge with me and kind of still believe it, even though there's been no, seemingly no movement on that front. <laughs> So I'm they, gonna they keep... only have four years left to get yeah, that shit together. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe it, though. I believe in Elon. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen so many videos of the, those things catching on fire, driving straight into traffic. There was one where uh, there was, like, a truck that had traffic lights on the back of it. Like, it was transporting traffic lights. And so the, the Tesla got confused because uh, it had yeah. s- signaled that there were traffic lights. And it kept stopping on the freeway. <laughs> well, don't put traffic lights on the back of a truck. <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> God, I'm so smart. I should I should run everything. <laughs> I would I would vote for you thank if you're you. the president. You shouldn't, but thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> the parent continues, quote, by simply labeling an animal a product in this context, the law would impose responsibility on the part of the breeder and seller. Instituting a strict products liability claim would encourage sellers to provide full disclosure of all breeder animal specific propensities, full pedigree information, medical examination of the animal, and training certification. Education and communication are key to proper animal handling and healthier, well-adjusted pets. Without giving full disclosure of known or or probable animal propensities to the buyer, the seller has negligently sold the animal. If that animal is unreasonably dangerous and harms the buyer, strict liability should be invoked. And if an animal is bred to be abnormally vicious or sold in a diseased state, the animal should be held defective and not merchantable. So that is two different ways that we can look at animals as products or not products. Mm-hmm. First, oh, so let's continue on. Um, I am very interested in animals as lab equipment, mm-hmm. animals as lab products, because versus uh, pets or medical 
animals they're treated very differently mm-hmm. and I'm interested to hear the backstory on how we take care of and breed and distribute rats for yeah. or mice for experimentation mm-hmm. because this is as you remember an episode about rats yes <laughs> we deviated very greatly by talking about birds and dogs but we are back to rats and mice so for lab rats, the care, shipping, and distribution of the animals is highly regulated. Yeah. Way more regulated than the pet industry, as I'm sure you can attest to. For sure, yeah. Do you know, are they considered products? So, I actually uh, wanted to open it up to questions to you. Let's say you have ordered a, you know, a, a, a brood or a breed or a, a mischief. Uh, is that what they're called? That's what a group of rats is called. Oh. I don't know about mice. But you've ordered a mischief of mice <laughs> and... Like, they all just up and die within the first three days of you receiving them. You yeah. have done nothing wrong. Um, do you get a refund? Has that ever happened to you? That has never happened to me. I would imagine you would get a refund, though. Yeah? Um, I also think, like like you said, it is, like, so highly regulated that I think it would, it, it would like, launch a whole investigation if Ooh. that happened. Okay. Yeah. Because, like, they're, they're really tightly regulated on, like you know, how how they die if they die, like, what you're doing to them. And if something's happening, like, from transport, then, like, they're going to, like, look into that. So walk me through the life, the full life cycle of a lab rat. Let's say you're breeding them in-house, mm-hmm. which is something you told me earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that life look like for that animal? Yeah. So, so if you breed them, okay, so you put a male and female together mm-hmm. overnight, the female gets pregnant, mm-hmm. um, kind of like clockwork. It's insane. Ooh, mice are on it. Mice are horny. I know, they're horny. <laughs> and, uh, we don't even have to give them like oysters or any aphrodisiac or anything. You know? Is oyster an aphrodisiac? For- Isn't it? <laughs> I've never heard of that. An aphrodisiac? No, I've heard of it. <laughs> oysters as an aphrodisiac. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a human aphrodisiac? Yeah, we don't give them to mice. I was just, I was just being silly, Christian. <laughs> oh, listen, I was, I was genuinely enchanted. <laughs> no, I wish. You don't uh, turn on candles? Cuddle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we pour a bath. <laughs> um, no, they will just go to town. The mice are pregnant for like a month, and then they give birth to little pups. Mm-hmm. They're pretty cute, actually, when they come out. They're like all red and tiny. You wean them after a month, mm-hmm. so you separate the sexes. Because otherwise they'll start to breed with their siblings, which you usually don't want. Uh, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are from Ohio. <laughs> Brutal. I am from the civilized state of Virginia, so we don't do that. <laughs> um, yeah, so and so then you separate them, and then usually you genotype them. So you make sure they have the DNA that you want them to have mm-hmm. um, for your experiment. So uh, what do you mean by the DNA? So, I mean, this is just from what I've read, but yeah. you're testing for type 1 diabetes. You can breed out a specific strain of mice that will develop type 1 diabetes yeah. like, in their lifetime. Yeah, I don't I don't know like about the specific genes for that sure. necessarily. That's usually why we do the breeding in-house, because we can get a really specific genotype. We have like an inducible model where we can induce cancer in our mice um, and the way we do that is we breed in a mutant oncogene so oh. we we can like turn on that oncogene and it'll cause the cells to like divide like crazy wow and that's like what cancer is when the cells like just mm-hmm. proliferate out of control mm-hmm. uh, that's normally like what I'm breeding my mice for mm-hmm. um, again you know I, I would rather not do animal research but like there definitely is like I, there there's an argument for why we do it for yeah, sure absolutely. and like I have like had to come to terms with that and you know did that take a long time to come to terms with kind of yeah I'm a vegetarian um so mm-hmm. I'm like this is kind of like a trade-off like I'm like yeah. I don't think I could eat 
eat meat after like seeing mm. mice. Di- I don't know. It's just like mm-hmm. flesh grosses me out. <laughs> Your job is to give mice cancer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's but I'm rough like to live through. Yeah, I'm like people like eat eat animals all the time, and mm-hmm. like that's like accepted. But I feel like like lab research is taboo, and like mm. you know, I, totally I feel agree. judged for doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Theoretically, this could one day like lead to a treatment. So yeah. it's like. For that reason, it's like, okay, totally. I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I like the actual process of doing it did take a while to get adjusted to because it's like, oh, I am taking a life and I do not like to do that mm. <laughs> if I can help it. That is really a tough field to be in. Yeah, for sure. That's yeah. Strong mental fortitude. Yeah. It's not like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm not doing it because I like doing it. So once, um, once you've studied what you need to study, your mouse, your mouse has cancer, you've yeah. tested the thing you need to test on it, how do you dispose of them? Do you mind if I ask? Yeah, I mean, you can ask. So, <laughs> so again, this is like a part of the, the research that's really tightly regulated. Like, mm-hmm. um, they want to make sure that you're – so, okay, so you call it – instead of killing them, you call it sacrificing – Oh, which is like I don't know why that's darker. I know, right? <laughs> We're sacrificing these mice to like a higher power, which is science, of course. So we sacrifice the mice or sack them for short. So no, yeah, not a, a shortening. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I feel like I'm like revealing something terrible right now. Okay, um, so we so you sack them. We sack them. Um, but you have to do it like two ways because mm-hmm. they want to make sure that the mice are truly dead mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean there are a, a bunch of ways to do it but but all the ways that we do it are all approved by the animal use care and use committee mm-hmm. which is like a committee of scientists and like non-scientists community members who mm-hmm. approve every single like procedure you're going to do on mice and um the paperwork i cannot even imagine yeah i mean it's like painstaking so mm-hmm. so all of that has to be like like go through multiple rounds of approval before you can like do what you need to do for your experiments. There is generally no re- or path for lab mice to be released after the experiment. They're usually just sacked. Like released into the world? Adopted, released. Not that I know of, yeah. If you put a mouse on the streets of Chicago, it would survive maybe 30 seconds. <laughs> like, <laughs> it would it would get freaking gobbled up by some sort of <laughs> city city animal and or it would you know these mice are like raised in clean environments so they don't Mm -hmm. have any sort of like like adaptive immune system are they raised with each other or Mm -hmm. are they oh they are yeah so they're they get to have like social networks and whatever yeah they're in like cages with other mice yeah Love that for them. Yeah, so cute. <laughs> Part of what I was reading, first of all, lab mice are quite expensive. Lab yeah. rats, also quite expensive. I took this pricing from Charles River, which is a different yes. uh, lab mice facility. Most popular one that I've read is Jackson Laboratories, mm-hmm. which is where many people get their mice. But this is the Charles River pricing for a three-week-old male rat. You can get him for the low, low price of $71 each. Oh. A female rat that is three weeks old is $72. That's pretty cheap, honestly. Like, Because mm-hmm. those are just wild type. This is a brown Norway rat. Okay. So if you want any like genetic manipulation, mm-hmm. that's going to cost you a pretty fucking expensive. penny. Yeah. And so, like, we, I feel like our mice were, like, on the order of, like, 300 each. Oh, my God. The most expensive one of the brown Norway rats is if you get a lactating rat with a litter, that's a female, you can get that for $453.72 a pup. 
The oldest ones, the 11-week-olds, are also the most expensive ones at $201 for a female rat, $173 for a male rat. Which I asked you this at lunch, why are female rats more expensive? Which, with the pregnancy and the litter, I can totally understand that. But generally, why are they more expensive? I don't know. It's a pink tax. Girls love shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Girls love shopping. (laughs) I regret saying that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny, though. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's really interesting. I mean, I guess it makes sense if if they have a litter, like, Mm -hmm. yeah. It'd be worth it. Getting more mice, so. more bang for your buck. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know why. Because yeah, I mean, at least for mice, they produce about the same amount of like, mm-hmm. males and females. So, and part of what you're paying for with these lab mice, especially as the older they get, you're paying for the care that they've already received, yeah. which mm-hmm. is bedding, food, socialization, yeah. housing, space, landlords, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so that is what you're paying for when you pay all that money for a lab mouse, which then takes you know, weeks and weeks of paperwork and whatever to receive and then dispose of. Yeah. And that is how acquiring a a lab rat is. Um, let's talk about COVID. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, at one point in the pandemic, over 200 mice at the University of Pennsylvania alone had to be sacked. I wrote euthanized in here, but I'm going to start using sacked. <laughs> Usually they're called by uh, this is at the University of Pennsylvania, gassing them with carbon dioxide, and per David Grimm for Science.org, their necks are broken just to make sure that they're, mm-hmm. that they're out of there. Quote, we've had Nobel Prize winners volunteer to come in and clean cages just to keep things running, he says. If we have to shelter in place, we've got cots and food here just in case. Still, this is from the article, scientists are preparing for the worst. Isabella Roch, an immunologist at the Oregon Health and Science University, says they're currently at level three. If it goes to level four, she says she'll need to narrow her colony down to just 10% of the mice that her experiments absolutely require. I'm very hopeful we won't get there, she says. That article is from March 23rd, 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things got a lot worse. I think they got there. Um, <laughs> I mean, like I was telling you, like it takes a really long time to breed these specific things because, mm-hmm. you, you know, you can only really work on one gene at a time. And mm-hmm. a lot of the times you want a homozygous positive genotype. So mm-hmm. like you want, you know, both alleles to have the gene that you're wanting them to have. Mm-hmm. So you have to do like several rounds of crossing. And so that takes, like like I was saying, like the gestation period is a month and then the the weaning period is a month. Wow. And then you can put them together usually at like six to eight weeks. Um, and so, yeah, so you're already at three months, three or four months, like, wow. and you just have to do that over and over again. So to lose all of that in COVID is like devastating because devastating. you just have so much more. You have to, you know, go back and do it and it's going to mm-hmm. take a lot of time and. And a, a lot of killing. Like yeah. you said, a lot of people struggle with the killing part of yeah. and the disposal of lab animals. Yeah. This was just multiplied infin- infinitely. Uh, from the Daily Targum, quote, as many as 23,000 experimental mice were euthanized in early 2020 by the staff of Rutgers Biological Health and Sciences. Uh, and a little known tragic result from the campus shutdown that followed the outbreak of, co- of COVID. And that was a, like a six-month investigation into just Rutgers Biological Health Sciences. I can only imagine the thousands and thousands and thousands of more mice that just some intern or some Nobel Prize winner had <laughs> to go and gas and yeah. break the necks of. Yeah, it's so, really a, a great equalizer. Like yeah, the literally. Nobel Prize winners doing it with the little <laughs> undergrad like research techs. Like, yeah. Gosh. And it's highly regulated. Uh, so the point that I had wanted to get out of this section of talking about lab mice is how tightly regulated the industry is, mm-hmm. how expensive it is to acquire a rat, and the life that it has has to be very specifically controlled. The feeding, the socializing, the whatever has to be very 
intense and yeah. focused. Yeah. So let's talk about pet rat care <laughs> and distribution. <laughs> well, there are a few g- places that are good that take care of rats, which is called a rattery. Did you know that? Oh, God. <laughs> There's a place in Chicago called Melly Rats that has like this adorable little website that have pictures of all the rats that they got on there. You don't have a pet rat, do you? I do not have a pet rat, no. Do I'm you want one? one? No. Okay, good. <laughs> I definitely don't want one. I think I picked rats for this episode because I wanted it to be a challenge in empathizing with a life that is not as cute as a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is, you know, a lot to think about. The swaths and swaths of rats that go through, as we'll talk about, very, very unfortunate lives uh, in the pet industry or in the lab industry. Yeah. Yeah. And also like all the rats that are living on the streets of Chicago. Like. Yeah, but we don't pay for those. <laughs> oh, no, of course. Well, indirectly. This is the bus- <laughs> it's the Busted Business Bureau, not the Busted Rat Bureau. <laughs> Fair. But the, um, so there are ratteries that, you know, take care of a small legion of rats to be adopted out. They, <laughs> your face is fucking disgusted right now. <laughs> There's a vast network of rodent breeding facilities that cater specifically to pet rats, but also snake food. So mm. they're, they will breed pet rats specifically to kill them to then freeze, give to snakes. I forgot that snakes eat rodents, so this was a a big surprise to me. (laughs) As you may or may not be able to imagine or infer from the fact that this is the Busted Business Bureau podcast, many rat breeding facilities are nightmares. Just awful. I never considered, like, where the rats at Petco or PetSmart come from, but you know who has? PETA. And I am the first to clown PETA. (laughs) I am very not down for the cause of PETA. I clown them all the time. There will probably be a busted business bureau about PETA someday once I get all the shit together. (laughs) However, investigations.peta.org is where you can, like, see the only sensible shit that PETA ever does, which is send someone undercover to take horrific videos of a terrible place for animals. So, I don't know who is doing copy over there, too, because, like, once they release the investigation, it's just, like, so cringe to read, even though I generally agree with it. I don't think the animals should be living like this. It's like, Are they putting girl. puns in there? <laughs> if, you know what? That would maybe make it more uh, palatable. Yeah. I should talk. Anyways, let's consider Holmes Farms. Holmes Farms is a massive animal distributor in Pennsylvania. And this is going to get pretty dark, just so you know. It's already, I should have put that at the top of the episode. But if you're not already thinking that this is dark from us talking about sacrificing <laughs> mice, it's going to get even darker. So, anyways, uh, pre-2016, business at Holmes Farm was booming as they would provide rabbits, guinea pigs, rats, etc. to Petco, PetSmart, whatever. In theory, their business model is to adequately breed a large supply of each animal to then sell out to those big distributors. And it's a, uh, they also give it to a variety of other smaller places in the Northeast. It sounds like a really big task for one farm. And that's because it is a really big task for one farm. So in a three-month-long undercover PETA investigation, which is cool. An undercover investigation is cool, and yet PETA still is so fucking lame. Paired with absolutely shocking videos, uh, this prompted a USDA investigation. Not that I don't trust PETA's reporting, but I'm always skeptical of it, so I'll defer to the USDA investigation. Yeah, Yeah, let's defer to the U.S. government. (laughs) (laughs) So fair. But according to a 10-page single-spaced report uh, from the USDA, quote, USDA inspectors visiting Holmes Farm found dead, diseased, lethargic, and cannibalized animals. Yeah. Inadequate space, unsanitary conditions, and other signs of negligent or mismanagement, including improper record keeping and a lack of procedures for euthanizing diseased animals so uh, there are videos of them like just tossing huge groups of them just into bins putting them down in a freezer opening it up 15 minutes later they're still not dead it is just awful gross 
So, from the dodo, quote, hundreds of baby mice were sealed in plastic bags and thrown into a freezer to die so that they could be sold as snake food to owners who want a more humane alternative to live feeding. (laughs) It's just so rough. Yeah. The clip shows mice struggling to escape in a packed bag that were still alive 15 minutes later. Holmes Farm passed several recent inspections by the USDA, an indictment, perhaps, of the federal department's lax oversight. Following PETA's report, the USDA conducted another inspection of the facility, which then led to the thing that I told you about not two minutes ago. So they're, in, But they're inspected, like, as though... They're not inspected as, like, lab animal facilities, No, right? no, not at all. It's, like, its own thing. It is its own thing, which is why there has been plenty of lax oversight, um... And not a lot of investigation from Petco, PetSmart, whatever, even though they have on their website, like, oh, we, you know, vet all our distributors. We make sure that it's all on the up and up. No, they don't. (laughs) And they are under no legal obligation to, as we'll find out. They do not have to. And that is, like puppy mills, like cat breeding places, it is just abysmal. It is so, so dark. Yeah. The videos are just so gruesome. I do not recommend them. Okay. Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, oh, back to the lab rats. I saw a picture of the ear rat for the first time. <laughs> you French. They like grew a whole ear on the back of a, of a mouse. Disgusting. It looks so <laughs> gross. I can't even imagine. All right. So with that in mind, the, uh, the idea that pet rat distributors are very underregulated. What happens when a rat who is born there, raised there, gets a disease, is then sold to a human being, and then something bad happens? Let's talk about it. I don't want to get too colorful into the story. This is also so dark. So (laughs) buckle in. Here's the scoop. On Memorial Day of 2013, 10-year-old Aiden Panky and his grandmother bought a companion rat from Petco for $7.49. Now, he had already had a pet rat named Oreo, Great name. (laughs) And they were getting her a bestie, as rats are famously social creatures, and they get quite lonely. The family called it their summer science project, according to ABC News. Two weeks later, Aiden comes down with a particularly nasty flu. They took him into the hospital for care, and they were sent home with typical flu doings. A few days later, he took a turn for the worst. He was brought back to the hospital, and he died there just about (gasps) two weeks after he had acquired the rat. The family arranged for funeral services for Aiden, and around Christmas time, more than six months after his death, the medical examiner contacted them and confirmed something that I'm not even sure they were thinking. Aiden didn't die of the flu. He died from rat bite fever. Is that what it's called medically? (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. It's called rat bite fever. Rat bite fever is a bacterial infection that is caused by contact with rats. You don't need to have been bitten. It's called rat bite, but you can get into contact with the disease with just like feces or fluids or whatever of rats. So if you come into contact with them in some way, don't properly wash your hands, touch your eyes, your face or mouth, you can come down with this infection. And it's just bacteria that like exists in the rat. It's not acquired. I am so glad you asked that question. (laughs) This is important for the overall understanding of liability. The bacteria in rat bite fever is natural in rats, but not every rat will give you rat bite fever if you come into the same contact with it. Like if you get bitten even by a wild rat on the street, you will not guaranteed get rat bite fever. This is where my science thing gets a little foggy, okay? Because I'm trying to read these, like, <laughs> science articles that I do not understand. But here's the most succinct paragraph I have on rat bite fever. Quote, The rat appears to be the dominant natural reservoir of the bacteria, which is called a long name that I can't pronounce, which is likely a member of the commensural flora of the rat's upper respiratory tract. So things like the, the larynx, upper trachea, whatever, middle ear. 
Healthy domesticated or laboratory rats demonstrate this bacteria colonization 10% to 100% of the time. Which I don't understand science, but that seems like way too wide of a... No. <laughs> That's nuts. <laughs> While wild rats appear to be 50 to 100% colonized, most rats are asymptomatically colonized, but occasionally may demonstrate signs and symptoms of the disease. So, Dr. Bear, I need your opinion. Oh, God. 10% to 100% of the time is not accurate, right? I mean, yeah, I don't know. That is, if, if I tried to do that, I would, if I tried to report something 10 to 100% <laughs> accurate, I would, I would get yelled at. <laughs> You'd be fucking fired for yeah, good exactly. reason. But also, if I'm understanding correctly, it seems like an imbalance of the bacteria is how a rat can get sick and then can get you sick. Uh, yeah. So in theory, if you just have a rat, it will have that bacteria naturally growing inside of it. But Like probiotics or like neutralizing it or something. Exa- I, don't, I don't know how bacteria works. Literally, but. yeah. So I don't understand it necessarily. But I know that you can test a rat for rat bite fever. It can get sick itself. Uh-huh. And you can then test it and be like, this guy's positive for rat bite fever. <laughs> don't. But you can't when you buy it. Can you test it? It's not accessible to the public to test. Um, let's start a company. <laughs> let's, literally, let's start a company on the Busted Business Bureau. We're an entrepreneurial podcast. Yes. So this is important for the following. Panky's family sues Petco, where they got the rat, on the grounds that, one, they sold a defective product, and, two, they did not properly warn the family that this could happen. Mm-hmm. And also, what's important is he already had that first pet rat that he was presumably yeah. interacting with the same way he interacted with the second one, yeah. as in, you know, probably not washing his hands a ton, he's 10, whatever. Do you have to, like, sign something when you buy a rat at Petco? They give you a uh, piece of paper that, in theory, has all the warnings on it, and mm-hmm. they should give you a thing to sign, like a waiver <laughs> or whatever, but I this is not in my notes, but I was reading just a lengthy investigation of a Colorado Petco or a PetSmart, I, I should know the difference, but I don't, where it was like, they should have the following requirements for ferrets and cats and guinea pigs, but they don't. They should have them in different quarters. They should do this, mm-hmm. and they don't, so... Okay. I think uh, generally you're supposed to have something to sign that lets you know that you could die from this, but yeah. eh, people don't. So anyways, uh, so they sue Petco. Here's how it goes. Uh, and this is from the, ooh, what's it called? Case law. I have a link in the description. Whatever. So this is a quote from <laughs> <Whatever>. something. <laughs> I don't do good research on this podcast. Everyone should know that. Quote, Petco attorney Kimberly Oberecht said, uh, with the San Diego firm Horton, Oberecht, Kilpatrick, and Martha, why did I keep all that in? <laughs> Ask the jurors to, quote, start over, please, and see the other side of this story. She implored jurors to keep sympathy out of their decision, incredible for a lawyer, <laughs> before noting that any pet carries a risk. Quote, dogs bite, cats scratch, birds and reptiles carry bacteria that can make you sick, and so do rats. Petco cannot single-handedly remove bacteria that is natural to an animal. She added... Is a rat that carries bacteria a defective product? The rat bite fever bacteria is natural to a rat's flora. They carry it all the time. She noted that it would be virtually impossible for Petco to sell the rats free of rat bite fever unless the rats were raised and sold in a laboratory setting. Yes. (laughs) Petco tests its rats for rat bite fever if one of its employees gets bitten. They've been sued by so many employees who've contracted (laughs) rat bite fever. Oh, my God. But testing all of the rats is not, quote, industry standard. Rat bite fever is preventable in humans by safe handling. Petco did not violate any of the laws by selling rats, Oberecht said. Which, uh, the word industry standard is what drove me fucking nuts reading this. Because why is it not industry standard to test the pet rats? And uh, we'll talk about it in the conclusion. We'll talk about it in the conclusion, period. (laughs) Ultimately, 
Petco won this lawsuit, and the uh. family of the child who died did not receive the $20 million in damages that they had initially sought out. Oh, my God. That's so, so fucked up. Petco wins. I can't even imagine going home after that day, like being Petco's lawyer and being like, all right, great. I mean, what a bleak career to be right? a Petco lawyer. So bleak. The ima- again, the amount of employees that sue for Rabbi Fever <laughs> is crazy. Jesus. <laughs> they get it all the time there. So, yeah, I, once again, I'm really disturbed at the words industry standard. And and I, is that, like, written down? Like, yes. industry standard is, like, actually, like, a policy that's written down? Or it's, like... She was describing the industry of pet sales, pet keeping and pet selling. Okay. Which, if you were to test every single rat that comes through Petco for rat bite fever, that's a whole blood test that you have to then send to a lab, get back, confirm the results, mm-hmm. and keep the rats separate from each other so they don't give each other rat bite fever if they were to have one, or if they were to have it. And that, to me, is where this becomes the busted business bureau. Because this has been kind of like a loosey-goosey episode talking about rats. Mm-hmm. But we would rather sell a rat for $7.49 at Petco that isn't properly tested for anything rather than have a $70-plus rat that is vetted and bred without a horrific infection. Yeah. Do you understand? Like, you don't receive rats. And you, like you said before, there would be an investigation if you received a bunch yeah. of mice that fucking died. Yeah. Um, but that is not what we have at pet stores, and people pay the price for that all the time. Well, also, like, I think if people understood the liability, they probably would want, they'd choose the latter option. Yeah, they, they would. But right now, the nor- the industry standard in the pet industry is to sell a rat for $7 that has just come from a terrible, Insane. terrible place, right? I think the conclusion is don't have a pet rat. <laughs> like- so true. <laughs> the, the, literally, yeah. A premium lab rat is incredibly less likely, like a jarringly dissimilar amount of likely, to carry an, a disease like that. Isn't it still 50 to 100%? In It was it said 10 to 100% in lab rats and then oh. 50 to 100% in wild rats. So I don't even fucking know. Yeah, I don't know how you crunch those numbers. But so there are lab techs that do occasionally contract rat bite fever. Yeah. Which are, they generally have a better understanding that they have one. Because again, Aiden was taken to the hospital presenting flu symptoms and nobody thought to connect two and two. Yeah. I don't know. So is there a treatment if they know what it is? There is. What's the treatment? Do you know? I don't know the precise what they do to it, for it, but it left untreated, it's like a 10 to 13% fatality rate. So it's. Okay. It's pretty high. Yeah. The problem with the rest of the population, like Aiden or like other people, is that they don't connect to, you know, they don't connect the dots. They have mm-hmm. rabbit fever, which is why they come to the hospital. They don't get the proper treatment that they need. And circling back to parents' paper, classifying pet rats as products would likely benefit them in the long run as more regulations on testing would be nothing but beneficial to everybody involved. Even if the companies don't wind up doing it, at least the regulations are there and mm-hmm. people have more recourse to sue. Yeah. <laughs> Take companies down that don't follow the rules. Yeah. So is it, it's just financial incentive for the companies to not classify them as products. Ex- absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Because then you have to go through strict testing and yeah. regulation before you sell it to the public. Yeah. Which is ultimately not the industry standard. So, to zoom out even more, as we've talked about throughout the episode, I think the industry of pets is pretty fucked up to begin with. (laughs) Stocking live animals on shelves or in tight quarters, like, waiting to be adopted is just, like, a weird kind of fucked up that's so normal. Mm -hmm. And parents' argument of classifying animals as products would ultimately help animals in the short term, but, like, the system that we have them under is so fucked up, and it's like a... It's more like a band-aid alleviation of their suffering, which is noble, but ultimately not liberating yeah. to animals. And yeah. I'm generally on the team of liberating animals. I like them. Mm-hmm. And that's everything I wrote down for this episode. <laughs> How are you feeling? I feel I feel really good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, 
Yeah, I'm like, who would have a pet rat? Um, especially now that I know, like, all the ri- – like, I didn't know it was so risky. Yeah. And people, like, let them, like, sleep in their beds and, like, crawl over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so gross. And you don't – there is no way to know if it is – sometimes you could tell, like, the rat just, like, looks sickly. Like, it'll have nasal <laughs> discharge or whatever. But oh, it's generally hard to tell when a rat has it. And yeah. then when you get it, it's like, do I have rat bite fever? I don't know. But, yeah, I'm very, very disturbed at what is considered industry standard in yeah. the pet industry and uh, that is why this is the busted business bureau let's talk about fuck up industries <laughs> you dig i dig <laughs> and the difference yeah the difference between lab rats and pet rats is also what i wanted to talk about yeah it's very very interesting and i i, I mean like my my big thing is that i think um like the the issue of working with with animals and labs is like people like really look down on it and mm-hmm. i i feel like it's like I, I'm even like a little uncomfortable talking about it on something that's recorded because I think like, mm. I, I don't know, I don't want to ruffle any feathers and I don't want to like jeopardize any like career positions that I might have mm-hmm. because like people are just so like they tiptoe around it so much mm. and so it's just so it's interesting to me that that's like held to such a different standard than like the pet industry mm-hmm. and um yeah I just I don't know like how to reconcile that and like. I, I'm just, like, very careful when I talk about lab animals in general because of that. Yeah. I think what Parent had said, which is, this is obviously paraphrasing, but he was like, the more fucked up that, like, a, a pet story is, like, the more strict laws will be put in place. And I think because <laughs> some of the things that happen to lab, like, lab animals are fucked up, like, people yeah. give them cancer or grow ears on the back of them or whatever. <laughs> like, it's just extraordinary circumstances, which is also why it's so taboo. But instead of, like, actually talking about it, which yeah. would benefit everybody, yeah. like, yeah. have an open conversation about it, we instead, like, that's the thing that's judged, and then we just let the pet <laughs> industry go right. on. Because everyone benefits. I mean, like, that's, I was, we were talking about this before, but, like, yeah. everyone benefits from animal research, even if you're, like, very against it. Like, mm-hmm. everybody, you know, most people take advantage of modern medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people use cosmetic things that were, even if they're not currently being tested on animals, they were at some point tested for, you know, safety on animals. Mm-hmm. And so it's, like, you know, it's it's just, like, part of the world we live in, and it we is, have to accept it. It is. It's the reality that we live in, and I think there's technological advancements that are still coming up that would try to alleviate animal suffering or yeah. find different paths. Oh, yeah. That's not but, to say that there aren't problems with lab animals and absolutely. the way we use them, but... Yeah. So it is an exciting new field that is coming up that people find in technological alternatives to animal testing. But that is the world we live in right now. And so why not talk about it? Like that's to me, I am very team talk about it because I like I like gabbing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love to gab. Oh, how I love to gab. So that is that's an episode about rats, everybody. Uh, how are you feeling? Doing good emotionally? Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go um, adopt some rats off the Chicago alleyway. <laughs> <laughs> I struggle with my own feelings on animal testing and the, the entire animal industry because I think it is the way that we treat animals as a society is so incredibly fucked up. And what am I gonna do about it? I don't know. <laughs> This is what I do. I sit around and talk about it on a podcast. Amen. Yeah. What, what a thing to have on a podcast to be like, yeah, I don't know my own feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's okay. But it's something I, yeah, that I grapple with and I think about a lot. Yeah. And how I interact with animals and society at large. And here we are. Yeah. We don't have to have an opinion on everything. We yeah. can still be figuring it out. Still figuring it out. Well, any final thoughts before we uh, get out of here? Um, no. I'm uh, <laughs> coming to my show on Thursday. Yeah. Uh, 
get mad at me there if you have thoughts on animal <laughs> research that you want to share. Um, I appreciate the sensitivity with which you talk about animal research. And I think it is very difficult to talk about, like you said. I understand that it is difficult to talk about in your field, and you have been through a lot. And so I appreciate that you've been so thoughtful about it. Thank you, Christian. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. Uh, thank you for coming on this podcast, and thank you for going to brunch with me. Oh, uh, yeah. We went to Fancy Flights again today. Uh, listeners of the show know that I go there a lot. <laughs> and yeah, if you like this, you can donate to my Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash Bureau. Come to my live show. Go to Alex's show, more importantly than my live show. And, yeah, have a good day, everybody. I will see you next time. Oh, I will see you in a few weeks because, again, I'm taking some time off to finish something, and then I will bring (laughs) it back to all of you, and then we will go from there. We'll circle back, okay? Goodbye, everybody. We will circle back later. Deuces. (laughs) 